Most of us spend most of our life in the pursuit of happiness. We live in the American culture that teaches us that happiness is a result of acquiring things, accomplishing things, and doing things. For most of us, we spend a lot of time trying to keep away, stay away, and run away from anything that smells like sickness, sadness, or suffering. Last week, we began a new sermon series entitled The Good Life, whereby you and I examine the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. The sermon is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus the Christ is the one who preaches this message, and Jesus has a way of flipping the script. What I mean by that is that he has a knack of turning cultural norms upside down. And once again, when you and I come to the second beatitude, Jesus does precisely that. He says something that we don't expect him to say. So I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, we'll only read verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus was a masterful communicator. He understood the value and the power of an effective introduction. The introduction of the Sermon on the Mount is commonly called the Beatitudes, and Jesus comes to the second Beatitude and simply says, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's long been said that the purpose of an introduction is to arrest the attention of the audience. There's more than one preacher who has said that a good introduction ought to seize the congregation by the shirt collar, drag them in, making them face-to-face with you, the preacher, and compelling them to listen to the message. If that's the description of an introduction, then Jesus knows precisely how to draw people in. Jesus says, blessed are they who mourn. The word mourn means to grieve, it means to be sad, it can also be understood as to weep. Now this is counterintuitive. We live in a culture that says blessed are the happy, blessed are those who have it all together, blessed are those who can slap a smile on their face at any moment of every day, blessed are those who have everything and the world by the tail, blessed are the happy. Yet Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the mourn. Now I realize that some of you have been raised to understand that weeping or crying is a sign of weakness. Still others have been raised to say real men don't cry. Yet Jesus says, blessed are those who know how to weep. Blessed are those who know how to grieve. Blessed are those who mourn. I must be honest with you this morning that I think that grief is a gift from God. It's one of God's ways to help us process difficult situations, for you and I both know that tough times are part and parcel with the human condition. All of us know the heavy heart that results from a relationship that 
turns bad. We know what it is to grieve the loss of a loved one as we stand over their casket. Maybe it's a spouse of some 50 years. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a beloved family member. Maybe it's a good friend or a neighbor. We know what it is to feel grief. We know what it is to have the heart-wrenching reality of the loss of a job or the loss of employment or the loss of a reputation or the loss of health and physique. We know what it is to lose something and in response to that, to grieve. We know what it is to be sad. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The Bible is rather picturesque when it describes God's people. God's people seem to employ and incorporate a wide range of emotions. We, we are told that Abraham grieved at the death of his wife, Sarah. We're told that David grieved at the death of his son, Absalom. We are told that even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, grieved, for he wept at the tomb of his BFF, Lazarus, knowing full well he was about to raise him from the dead. And Jesus grieved as he entered Jerusalem, saying to that holy city, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. The psalmist, which is always an expression of emotion, says that tears have been my food both day and night. The prophet named Jeremiah was commonly called the weeping prophet. And he said, oh, that my head were like a fountain and my eyes were like streams and springs of water for I've been weeping day and night at the slaying of my people. Yes, God's people have always been emotional, always know that there is, oh, it's okay to be uh, sad and to grieve and even to cry and to weep. Yet you probably understand you have a sneaking suspicion that when Jesus comes to the second beatitude, he has a specific type of grief in mind. There are a couple of words that Jesus could have used to describe weeping or wailing or grieving or sadness as a result of suffering. But he chooses a word that is charged with emotion. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, it is this word that describes how Jacob responds when he gets the word that his beloved son Joseph had been devoured by wolves. It's Jacob who who grieves. It's a heart-wrenching, it's a gut-level type of mourning. It's the same word that the disciples are Uh, used to describe as they hear about the death of their Messiah, for they mourn the death of Jesus in Mark's gospel. It is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses when he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, something that's translated as godly grief. Godly sorrow that brings repentance and leads unto salvation never disappoints but worldly grief he says always leads to death that's the word godly sorrow godly grief that godly grief that leads us unto repentance 
and it brings about salvation. This is what Jesus has in mind. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not just saying, blessed are people who cry at a funeral. He is not just saying, blessed are people who can cry at the drop of a hat. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the crybabies. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who when they don't get their way, they throw a temper tantrum so that everyone around them eventually acquiesces to their needs and wants. Jesus is not saying, blessed are people who just whine and mope. Blessed are people who just loathe in self-pity. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, blessed is the person who has godly grief that leads them to the point of repentance. This is the grief that David had. For when David had his sinful sexual escapade with Bathsheba, he penned Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned. Do you hear the grief that's in David's heart because of his sin? This is the same godly grief that Isaiah had when he encountered the holy God. For when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in the temple, he said, woe is me. I am done. I am unglued. I am as good as dead. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you hear the gut-wrenching sorrow and grief because Isaiah was seeing the holy God and Isaiah was well aware of his own sinfulness. This is the same kind of godly grief that Peter has when he encounters Jesus. He's there in the fishing boat and Jesus approaches him and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is aware of the holiness of Christ and the sinfulness of his own life. And he says to the Lord, with I can well imagine, with head cast away, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. You hear the grief that's in his heart when he acknowledges his own sin before a holy, righteous rabbi. This is the same godly grief that Paul speaks about to his son in the ministry, Timothy. For in his letter to Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying that demands full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I don't know about you, but I am the worst sinner that I know. That's not just preacher talk. I say that because I'm well aware of my sin. I know my sin. I don't know all of your sins. I suppose if you come and tell me all your sins, you may be the worst sinner I know. I don't know. But uh, for right now, I'm the worst sinner that I know. Because I'm very well aware of my sinfulness. And so I understand the godly grief that Paul writes about when he says to Timothy, his son of the ministry, listen, Jesus came to save sinners. And I am the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst sinner that I know. I understand that. This is what Jesus is driving at. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are they who have godly grief because of their sin. Blessed is the person who has perpetual sadness because of disobedience. Blessed is the person who mourns. And the mourning is a result of you grieving 
your offense before the Lord. Because you and I realize that when we sin, it's as if we go up to a holy God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the God of the cosmos and the universe, and we slap him in the face. What do you think would happen if you went to another land that had a, a monarch and you went up to that king and you slapped him in the face? I promise you, you wouldn't live to tell about it. You would be thrown into jail for life or probably, more accurately, you would be slain right there on the spot. And that's how people respond to an earthly king. Can you imagine what it is when you and I approach the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe who spoke and everything came into existence, this one who is the great majestic I am, this one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, this one who is the eternal, omnipotent, om omnipresent God of the universe, we go up to him and in arrogance and selfishness and sinfulness, we slap him in the face. What do you expect is to happen? Oh, my friends, when you and I realize the depth and the seriousness of our sin, the only appropriate response is godly grief. This is what Martin Luther has in mind. When Martin Luther says that the life of the believer is a continuous act of repentance. The life of the believer is a continuous act of repentance. Let me tell you what Martin Luther does not mean by that. He doesn't mean that you have to repeatedly ask forgiveness from the same sin that you committed 20 years ago. When he says it's a continuous act of repentance, it's not as if you have to go and ask God to forgive every day, every day of a sin that took place a long time ago. No, he's not talking about the sin of yesteryear. He's not talking about the sin that happened uh, back then and there. He's talking about the sin that takes place in the here and now. That here and now, in this moment, when you realize that you have slapped the face of the holy God, immediately you fall on your face and you mourn and you grieve and you're sad and you respond unto the Lord. You say, oh Lord, have mercy on me. It is a, it is a lifestyle of a continuous act of repentance. Our theology teaches us that when Jesus died on the cross for us, all of our sin was nailed to the tree and that's exactly right. The sin that's past, present, and future the power of sin, the uh, condemnation of sin, uh, all of that was nailed to Jesus so that Jesus could say it is finished. And if Jesus says it's finished, it is definitely finished. He has nailed it with a doornail and it is, it is dead un unto God. So it is finished. The war with sin is over in the life of the believer. But the battle still rages. The war of sin is over, but the battle still rages. Let's just be intellectually honest with ourselves. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you have trusted him by faith for your salvation. You understand that Jesus paid it all and all to him you owe. Your sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And all of your sin was nailed to the tree. You've been baptized. You've testified to the world that you're identified with Christ. You do your best to walk with the Lord, and yet you still stumble, stagger, and fall. So the war is over, but the battle still rages. 
I appreciate the honesty of one of my brothers from another church who took me to lunch one day and was just confiding in me. He was probably in the seventh or eighth decade of his life. And yet he was confiding in me about sins that he still struggles with. And I sat there and I thought to myself, brother, you still struggle with this? And he said, yes, I do. He said, I suspect I will still struggle with this or that until the Lord calls me home. But pastor, I want you to know this. I keep battling. I keep battling. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Does anybody have that same testimony? I may not be all that I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. I understand what it is to walk with the Lord on a daily basis, on a regular basis. I understand what it is for all of my sin to be nailed to the tree. I realize what that's like, but yet I also understand the struggle and the strain of everyday life. So that Martin Luther says, the life of the believer is a continuous act of repentance because we still struggle with sin. It was John MacArthur that said it this way. He said, there is a sadness in the life of the Christian that is a nagging reality that you and I ought to outgrow this sin, but we just don't. I like his honesty. John MacArthur says, there is a sadness in our life. The sadness is, it's a nagging reality. We've been walking with the Lord. We ought to have outgrown this sin, but we simply haven't. Do you ever get frustrated with your frailties? Do you ever get tired of your sin? You know better. You've been taught better. You've received good doctrine. You know how you ought to live, but there are times when you stumble and fall. You ever get frustrated with your sin? I remember asking that question to a congregation and um, most of the people responded the same way you did. They didn't do anything, didn't say much. But there was a young lady, probably in her late 20s, early 30s. She was a wife and a mother. And probably, as I asked that question, I probably raised my hand as a gesture to say, any of you ever get frustrated with your sin? And she was sitting on the front, so she didn't see what people behind her were doing, and people behind her were not doing anything. You know what she did? Yeah! <laughs> she raised her hand and verbally responded, yeah! And you know what, I gotta be, I appreciate her transparency. And I appreciate her honesty. And the reality is, every one of us, when asked the question, do you ever get frustrated with the sin that so easily entangles you? Whatever that sin may look like in your life, the only appropriate response for the believer is, yeah, I do. I get tired of that. And Jesus says, blessed is the person who mourns, has godly grief because of his or her sin. Jesus says, this is the beginning of the good life. You say, but wait a minute, uh, pastor, uh, that doesn't sound like the good life. That sounds kind of depressing, to be honest with you. Well, my friend, you didn't hear the rest of the statement. You see, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. That word comfort is a word that means to come alongside, to aid, to help, to assist. That, that someone else is going to come alongside to assist the one who is grieving and mourning, weeping and wailing. Now, who do you think Jesus has in mind when he makes that statement? I can tell you, he, you can answer, he's thinking about God, and that's right. He's thinking about himself, that's correct. He's thinking about the Holy Spirit, exactly. Answer any of those three, and you got the right answer. Who is Jesus talking about? He's saying, hey, you bring your grief to me, and I'll give you grace. Because the good life is a perpetual sadness because of sin. And it is the promise of the provision of God's forgiveness. That's the good life. The good life is a perpetual sadness because of sin. Yes, it is a continuous act of repentance, but we know that when we repent, that when we come to God, our grief gives way to grace, and our God, who always responds with mercy and love and benevolence and kindness, our God always responds to our grief by giving us His grace so that those who mourn are always comforted. You and I realize that grace is a good gift that we do not deserve. It's an acrostic that you and I can define it in this way. It's God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's grace. And God says, I will heap grace upon grace upon you when you come to me mourning and grieving over your sin. David says in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You have a promise from the Lord that the moment your heart is broken, the moment your pride is punctured, the moment you kneel before the Lord in contrition, the moment your conscience is seared by the Holy Spirit. The moment that you come to the reality that what you just did, or what you just said, or what you didn't say, or what you didn't do, or what you just thought, or what you should not have thought, I mean, at any moment that you come to that reality that that is an offense to the king of the cosmos, and you begin to weep, and you begin to wail, and you begin to grieve, that is gut-wrenching, at that moment you go to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'll take your grief and I'll give you grace. I'll take your mess and I'll give you mercy. I'll, I'll take your rags and I'll give you righteousness. Oh, my friends, this is the good life. I don't know of anything else that's more appropriate or sweeter or greater than God's forgiveness. I don't know anything that's better than being at peace with God, at peace with myself, and at peace with fellow man. And the only way that can happen the only way that can happen is when you and I acknowledge our sin before the Lord and we respond in godly grief and he gives us his godly grace. This morning I wonder, whatever happened to sin? You know, there was a time when people acknowledged right from wrong what's holy and what's sinful. There was a time when 
sin was talked about, that sin was called what it was, sin. But whatever happened to that? I don't, I don't hear very many people identify themselves as a sinner anymore, and I don't find very many people identify their own individual sins in their lives. And we've got different names for it. We, we call it different things. We, we call it a, a moral mishap. We, we call it a, a character flaw. We sometimes reference it as just a mistake. We label it as a bad habit. We call it uh, an alternative lifestyle. We, we even speak of it as just a, a, a bad occurrence or a bad habit that we have in our life. Whatever happened to calling our disobedience what it is? You say, well, pastor, that's being judgmental. No, it's not. I'm only being judgmental if I point a finger at you and never point it back at me. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners to the core. I mean, all of us have different sins, and, and all of us are sinners. And it, you may have a different sin than me. I may have a different sin than you. But at the end of the day, it is that sin that's going to keep us from God. It is that sin that's going to send us to a justifiable hell. It is that sin where God's going to say, I'm not being mean-spirited. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not asking too much. I've clearly told you my expectations. I've clearly described my righteousness unto you. God's not being mean here. He's just saying, listen, everybody has slapped me in the face. So whatever happened to sin? The second question I would ask is, when was the last time your sin brought you to tears? I'm not asking, when was the last time you wept over somebody else's sin? I'm asking, when was the last time that you wept over your own sin? You know, sometimes we can get in the church so long that we can become hard-hearted. But we're no longer moved. I've heard it said that tears are like liquid love that stream down our faces. It, to know me is to know that I, I, I don't cry a lot. But oh, my friends, may I weep over my own disobedience. May I cry over my own sin. May we be a people not too brash and not too arrogant as to not bow before the Lord in humility and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. The story is told in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus was invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus was reclining at the table. It's important for us to note that in those days, the dining room table was no higher than 18 inches off the ground. To recline at the table literally meant that they lounge they were laying there at the table on cushions and probably Jesus would have been leaning on his left elbow and with his right hand he would have reached on the table and eaten the food his feet would have been extended out behind him because after all that was the dirtiest part of someone walking in sandals on those dirty roads and so they didn't want that to get around any food and so the feet were extended behind and Luke tells us that in that scenario Jesus was invited to come to the home of Simon the Pharisee. And all of a sudden, a woman crashed the party. Her name wasn't on the guest list. She was a lady of the night. She was a woman of ill repute. She was a person who had a really shady reputation. She walked into the door. She barged in. She made a mad dash to Jesus. 
She stood uh, behind his feet, and all she could do was sob. She was weeping. She was crying. She was wailing. The tears were streaming down her face, causing her mascara to run. And all of a sudden, the tears were pooling there at the feet of Jesus. She knelt down. She began to wash his feet with her tears, dry them with her hair. And in those days, for a woman to be out in public with hair uh, down was a very flirtatious act because a woman in those days was supposed to wear her hair up. And so for her to get down and wipe his hair, she had to flirtatiously uh, allow the locks to fall. And so she was wiping her feet with her hair. She was kissing his feet. She took a flask of perfume. She broke it. Because she broke the flask, she was prepared to use all of it all the contents, and she poured the entire bottle on the feet of Jesus. And Luke tells us it was an expensive jar of perfume. I can well imagine that the aroma filled every corner of the house. We are told that Simon the Pharisee thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him, and she is a sinner. I can't believe She's doing that, and I can't believe that Jesus is allowing her to do that. And Luke says that Jesus, knowing the thoughts of Simon the Pharisee, said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Instead of Simon saying, uh-oh, he said, tell me. It's always a problem. Jesus said, there was a certain money lender who owed money to two debtors. One, he gave 500 denarii, the other he gave 50. Now, denarius is a common day's pay for a common day's work, so in Jesus' story, the one who owed 500 denarii is about two years' worth of wages. The one who owed 50 denarii is about two months' worth of wages. Jesus in his story said that neither of these individuals could pay back the money lender. So you know what the money lender did? He canceled the debt of both. Now which one is going to love him more? And Simon thought to himself and said, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you are correct. Simon, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water so I could wash my hands. Yet do you see this woman? She's entered your house and not stopped crying. And with her tears, she has wet my feet. And Simon, I came into your house and you did not greet me in cultural hospitality by greeting me with a kiss on the cheek. But this woman, when she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And Simon, when I came into your house... You did not give me some olive oil to anoint my forehead uh, after walking from the hot, sweltering Palestinian sun. But this woman has come in and she has opened a jar of expensive perfume, emptied all of it upon me. You can smell it, can't you, Simon? For this woman who loves much shows that she's been forgiven much. He who loves little has been forgiven little. That woman came to the house that day. Her name was not on the guest list. But she left that night, and her, house, her name was written on the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. Because she took the posture of a mourner. She came in, and she was grieving. She had godly grief, godly sorrow. She had a, a perpetual sadness because of her sin. And she went and she gave all of her godly grief unto the Lord. It led her unto repentance and it brought about her salvation. And Jesus responded by taking her grief and giving her grace. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. When he says, what I want to do, I do not do. 
But what I hate, this is what I do. I love his transparency. I love his honesty because I can relate to that. I can understand it. For there are times that what I do is not what I want to do. What I say I hate I do, that's what I end up doing. And Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Who can help me? Who can save me? But thanks be to God, he's given us Jesus the Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not Life, nor death, nor demons, nor angels, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else can separate us from the love of God in Christ. What happens when we give God our grief? He gives us his grace. You say, what is the good life? The good life is realizing that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You do realize that John says in Revelation that there's coming a day when Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We live in a world of some more. You do know we're going to the place of no more. We live with some more pain and we're going to the place of no more pain. We live in a world of some more death and we're going to the place of no more death. We live in a world of some more sickness, but we're going to the place of no more sickness. We live in the world of some more sadness, but we're going to the place of no more sadness. We live in a world with some more suffering, but we're going to the place of no more suffering. We live in the world of some more, but we're going to the place of no more. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that Jesus always responds to my grief by giving me his grace, for there is a fountain filled with blood is drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Oh, there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. I don't know about you, but I just have to say, thank you, Jesus. You take my grief and you give me your grace. So this morning I ask, is there anyone in need of forgiveness? Is there anyone who gets tired of being tricked by your trouble? Is there anyone who gets frustrated because of your frailty? Oh, my friend, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, today I invite you to come and trust Christ, for he is the king of the cosmos. If you're here today and you are a believer, don't ever lose the perpetual sadness because of your sin. Don't ever become so stiff-necked and hard-hearted that you never bow the head and weep before the Lord. So believer, if you're here, And let's just be honest, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has revealed sin in your life today, today, right now, after we pray. You come and kneel kneel here at this altar. And you cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. And you get honest before God. Don't come with arrogance, come with humility. You bow before him. And if the spirit were to move in such a way that you were to cry, and I'm not looking to manipulate you in any way, but if it's an honest response, may these carpets be tear-stained.
because we understand that before God is going to do anything great, God's people have to have godly grief over their sin. I'm not asking you to defend your sin. I'm not asking you to describe your sin. I'm not asking you to deny your sin. I'm not asking you to ignore your sin. I'm asking you to confess it unto the Lord. You give him your godly grief. He will give you his godly grace. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. This is your invitation. Move and have your way. Help us to respond in obedience as you're drawing people unto yourself for salvation, as you're drawing people unto yourself for repentance, as you're drawing people unto yourself to be part of this faith family. As you lead, we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.